It's been an interesting week, and uh, between the Cubs winning the World Series a week ago and a week and a half ago, and the events of uh, of the election, I hope you have found time to reflect on um, some of the bigger themes and backdrops that uh, that face us. So, what does it look like for me in this world that I now find myself to to be a faithful follower of God? What does it look like to live a good life? What does it look like? to love God and serve others? What does it look like to be part of of a solution moving forward? What does it look like to be living at this particular time and moment? What would it look like to be faithful at this time? I I hope that you're asking those questions in part because uh, it is those kinds of questions that Luke is answering uh, as we turn to his gospel. So as you might know, there are four books that open up the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are accounts of Christ's life. They're not biographies because they don't tell us everything a biography would tell us. They are, they are gospels. It's a Greek word, uh, and it means good news. They, are, they were written in order to persuade us. That's, <laughs> they tell us that. I am writing to persuade you that Jesus is God. And he is the way forward, and you need to put your faith in Christ, and you need to listen to his teaching, and you need to follow his example. So each of the four Gospels comes at this from a little bit different angle. They have a different audience. Matthew writes for Jews, Mark probably for the Romans. John comes at this more philosophically. He's writing for the Greeks. And then Luke, who is a doctor, uh, a historian of sorts, and a travel companion for the Apostle Paul. Luke writes for Gentiles. So this is like the 80th sermon in this series over the last four years. Uh, You saw all the different ways we broke it out, all these different themes. There was the intro, and then there was revolution, and upside down, and a series on prayer, and uh, outrageous, and all these different little mini-series within the, the book of Luke. There are 11 sermons left. It's all set to end uh, as we arrive at Easter. And as you might know, uh, things slow down at the end. So the, the, first, uh, the first two-thirds of Luke's gospel is devoted to the first, essentially, 33 years of Christ's life. And the last third is devoted to the last week of Christ's life. So again, they're not, this isn't a biography, this is a, <clears throat> this is a gospel, so it, it gives extra time to the things that are extra important. So the death of Christ uh, on the cross uh, and the resurrection of Jesus is sort of a capstone to say that all the claims that he made, all the arguments that Luke has built, that he was God, that he showed up at the incarnation, that's not when his life began, that's just when he took on flesh. He has existed from eternity past, but he shows up on this rescue mission. He fulfills all the prophecies. He claims to be more than just a rabbi, and he does all these miracles. Everything leads up now to this final week of Christ's life. And what we have just had in the, in the preceding uh, section is that Jesus has been traveling from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And there was a lot of teaching that he did. A lot of the parables came in during that time. And, and now he's, he has entered Jerusalem at the big parade, the triumphal entry, uh, timing his arrival to be 
coincided with the Passover because the claim Jesus is making, right, is that the Passover lamb is him. So the, the Passover is something that had been celebrated by the Jews for over a thousand years. It goes back to when uh, the angel of death passed over the Jewish houses because they had taken a lamb and shed its blood and painted the doorpost. This is just before they flee Egypt. And Jesus is now making the claim, right, that was always about me. I am the Passover lamb. John says, behold, Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he he arrives perfectly at the time of the Passover. And everything is sort of tense. Uh, the crowds are growing in size. Jesus is sort of retreating. He's spending more time with his disciples than with other people. But things are dynamic. And his arrival into Jerusalem has done nothing to dampen the, the revolutionary moment that is going on. So remember, Jesus could have walked into Jerusalem unnoticed. He doesn't have a Facebook page. There's no Snapchat posts that he's given. The Jerusalem Times hasn't published his picture. Most people have no idea what Jesus looks like. He could have quietly slipped into, into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. He has a parade, right? And he puts the Romans on notice. The Romans are nervous right now. Pilate has come. He doesn't normally spend time in Jerusalem. He has come because when the Jews have this 4th of July celebration that they have, when they're remembering that they were liberated by the Egyptians, that God did that for them, the Romans who are now their oppressors need to be on full guard that they don't stage another revolution. So Pilate is there. They're wondering, will Jesus make a big deal of this? Is he going to, is he going to go low key? When he rides in and everybody's saying Hosanna and waving the palm branches, which is the symbol of the flag of, of the Jewish independence. When, when all that is happening, right? The Romans are like, okay, here it comes. And, and the, the people are, are then geared up, but they're going to be frustrated with Jesus almost immediately because instead of calling for the revolution, he turns into the temple, uh, he goes there, and he, he's going to cleanse it, right? He's, gonna, he's not going to play to the crowd, he's going to go a very different direction. And this will put the, the Jewish leaders on notice. The fact that he rode in on a donkey was very prophetic because it said the Messiah would ride in on a donkey, and that's what Solomon had ridden in. So they don't miss the symbolism, they don't miss his claims to being the king of Israel when he comes in. And then he goes to the temple and he, he starts throwing people out. This temple, this is to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. And they're looking at him sort of stupefied like, how, how, how dare you think you could, you could step in and take control of the temple, right? Who are you, right? And, and Jesus makes some of these little cryptic comments, uh, destroy this uh, temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it, right? Because he's making the claim that he actually is the temple now. So the temple that is there was the one that had been built by Herod the Great, called Herod the Great because he was a great builder, and he'd had 10,000 people working for almost 50 years at this point to rebuild this massive building. And it is, it is the pride and joy of the Jewish people. And, and Jesus goes there and he cleanses it. Then he makes comments about it being destroyed and he's going to bring it back. And then he's going to come back the next day on Tuesday. So we're just going to be in, in Holy Week between now and the end of this, uh, the end of the book. So on Tuesday, 
he goes back to the temple courtyards and he begins to forgive sins and to heal people. Which is, again, another in-your-face moment. So the temple had the sort of concentric circles that were, that were uh, increasingly open. So in the very heart of the temple is the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest can go once a year. And, and so this is the most sacred space on the planet. And then outside of that was the place where the, where the altar was, and only the male priests could go there. And then outside of that was a place that only male Jews could go. And then outside of that was a place where all Jews but only Jews could go. And then outside of that was sort of the parking lot, was where anybody could go. It's the courtyards. And Jesus shows up in the courtyards on Tuesday, and he starts to forgive people of their sins and to heal people. Which is what's supposed to be happening in the center of the temple, right? And he's doing it out there for anybody, not just the Jews. And, and they're, they're wondering, what is going on here? You can't do this. So, so now it's, it's like full out war. They're, they've started to figure out how are we going to trap this guy? We can't go at him straight up because he's got, he's too popular. We don't know what the crowds would do. So, one, the first sort of effort to trick him and trap him was when the Pharisees and the Herodians who were political opponents trying to ask him this politically charged question about taxes, and he just sort of dismisses that and leaves them all speechless. And then today we're in a passage in which the Sadducees make their first appearance. They're sort of the, the Pharisees were the religious right, the Sadducees are sort of the New York left, they're the, they're the blue bloods, they're old money, they're the elite, they're the educated. The Sadducees were in uh, sort of partnership with the Romans. The, the Sadducees had control of the temple. Uh, the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. They sort of focus on exclusively on the first five books of the Old Testament uh, we call the Pentateuch or the Torah. And so there's some differences there. The Sadducees are now going to say, let us see if we can if we can bring him in. And so they're going to ask him what is a, a, a gotcha question, a trick question, as it relates to the resurrection, which uh, the Sadducees don't believe in. And of course, what we're going to get, that Luke is writing to persuade us that Jesus is God. We should put our hope in Jesus, right? What we're going to get in this passage is a little sort of side story about the resurrection, which, uh, of course, it's not just the Pharisees that believe in the resurrection. It's Christ's followers who would affirm the resurrection. And Paul will say it's, it's absolutely a pivot point for everything. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, all bets are off. He made all these claims. This is sort of a capstone claim that he is, he is eternal, that he is God, that he can conquer death, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it, right? That's a, that's a prophetic claim about coming back to life. So Paul will say, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, Christianity's a joke. It's a bad joke. Joke's on us. Uh, and, and we could go beyond that and, and say that, look, if, if Jesus is just a teacher, right, then, then there isn't a path through Christ that deals with our sin and our guilt. <laughs> right? we, can't, we, can't be, we can't look to Jesus to give us eternal life because he died. He couldn't even get eternal life himself. Right? Everything falls apart. Furthermore, if the resurrection is true, 
If we're going to live forever, then we ought to live very differently than we live if it's not true. Right? If you're going to live forever and if your eternity hinges on how you live today, how we steward the gifts and abilities and opportunities and resources we have, how much we try to, to follow Christ's example, right? If all of that sort of is, is going to be shaped, if eternity is going to be shaped by how we live today, then we, we need to know that and, and to live that way. So this is a, this is a subtext that comes out of, uh, out of Luke, this interaction in the 20th chapter. So I, I'm turning now to verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection. And let me just pause here and say, uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees don't get along. Everybody's not getting along. The Pharisees and the Herodians don't get along. The Zealots don't get along. Nobody gets along. In many cases, things don't change. In this case, the Sadducees and the Pharisees don't get along, in part because of this belief in the resurrection, but in part because the Sadducees cannot control the Pharisees. So, because the Pharisees believe in the resurrection, because the Pharisees believe they're going to live after they die, and that what comes is going to be longer and in one sense better than what happens now, they're not scared to die. Right? And they're not going to be, they're not going to knuckle under. If, if truly I'm going to live again, Right, then I need to live differently, and I'm not scared of those who can only take my life. This is what Jesus will say in, in Matthew 10. Don't fear him who's able to destroy your body, but unable to destroy your soul. Right? All they can do is take your life. You're going to live again. Right? That's a big backdrop to all of this. And so um, I've, I've pointed this out uh, when I read through the book of Acts, I occasionally feel sorry for those people who are the jailers for the Apostle Paul because they can't control the guy. Paul ends up in jail all the time, and he goes into a village, he preaches, there's a riot, he ends up in prison. Right? That was sort of his MO throughout the book of Acts. So he's always in prison, and occasionally the guards will say things to him because he gets into prison, he starts talking about Jesus and people come to faith, and occasionally the guards will go, stop this, you, stop talking. And he goes, no, I'm not going to stop talking. He goes, well, then we're going we're gonna to beat you. He goes, I would consider it a privilege to suffer for Christ, right? And they go, well, that doesn't help. So we'll, we won't beat you, we'll kill you. He goes, yeah, to live as Christ and to die is gain, right? I mean, uh, bring it on. That would, that would actually be a benefit, right? So they've got this guy they can't control, because they got nothing on him. And there's a sense in which that same dynamic can happen between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They do not get along. So, there came to him, Jesus, some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the wife and raise up children for his brother. So this goes back to uh, Deuteronomy 25, one of the laws in the, you know, sort of embedded in, in, in the whole Old Testament law, not the Ten Commandments, but everything else, was this law that if, if, uh, if you have a brother and your brother dies, leaving a widow with no children, then you need to marry her. Her children at that point will be your brother's children, 
that money will stay in that family. His name will be preserved. And she will then have children to provide for her old age because there was no Social Security, no 401k plans. So children were your 401k plans. When you got old, you needed somebody who was going to take care of you. So that was the, the, the idea behind this, uh, this law of the Leverite marriage law. So that's what he's referring to here. But remember, this is a trick question. They're not losing sleep over this. They're trying to make Jesus look uh, like a hick, like an uneducated rube. That's, that's what they, they want to expose him as being someone who hasn't really thought this through. So, teacher, Moses, the big guy, right? We're going to go to Moses. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the wife, the man must take the wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second uh, and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterwards the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. So, um, again, this is a trick question. They're not worried about this. Although, you know, you read it and you think... uh, how slow were husbands four, five, six, and seven? I mean, this has got a little Drew Peterson tone to it. Uh, at some point, you're saying, I'd be sleeping with my eyes open because um, you don't last long if you marry this woman. But it's sort of a famous case, and it's put forward by the Sadducees to sort of force Jesus to do one of two things. To pick one, say, well, she will be married to the first husband or the last husband or whatever. And then they can just sort of show how that doesn't work. Or to say, well, you know, the resurrection doesn't really work. There's some problems with it, right? So that's what they're trying to uncover. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, uh, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are accounted worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So the answer that Jesus gives is a little unsettling to those who uh, are happily married and are hearing, well, you know, you're not really married in heaven. Uh, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't like the sound of that. Uh, I, I, I can't imagine in one sense that that would be the case. But here's, here's what's going on here. I don't believe that Jesus is in any sense diminishing marriage, right? I, I think um, Jesus elevates singleness in ways that we don't think about today. But he's not diminishing marriage here as much as he's saying, ultimately, right, we don't need to be married to be complete, but we need Jesus. And in heaven, right, our level of connection, fellowship with God, intimacy with God, is so great that it's very different than this world. And you cannot... Just project this life into heaven. So, uh, again, it's, it's unsettling to think this way until you realize there's a sense in which, and this is what he says, look, uh, we don't die in heaven. Um, 
because we're, there is going to be no death. We're going to be like angels in the sense of being immortal. Uh, be sons and daughters of the resurrection. So marriage, in one sense, is the union that produces children because people die. And Jesus says, we're going to take all that away. And your connection to God, your need for companionship, your ability to be complete and fulfilled and never alone goes away because you're, you're, we are completed in God. And this is, a, this is a surprising answer. Again, he's not denigrating marriage, but he is elevating our connection to Jesus. And he's saying heaven is not just simply an extension as you are thinking about it in this life. But then he goes on and he says, but for the record, right, uh, there is a resurrection. And this is a little bit of a slap in the face to the Sadducees. Mark has it a little differently than, than Luke does. So th- there's four Gospels. Three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, follow a very similar outline. Most of the stories told in one of them are told in one of the, at least one of the other two. And in Mark's account, Jesus asks the Sadducees, Have you not read... And you can almost imagine <laughs> there's a little bit of a in-your-face moment because the Sadducees are the, they're the educated, they're the elite. And, and so, of course, they've read. But he's like, oh, have you not read? So they, they follow the first five books of the Bible. He's going to use Exodus, one of the first five books, and say, look, um, but the fact that the dead are raised, even Moses showed us that in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all that live and for all live to him. So he goes back to Exodus 3, where a very famous passage, they would know it well. This is where God uh, reveals himself to Moses in the form of a burning bush. And Moses says, Before I go back to the Jews in Egypt and I tell them, you know, I was out here and I met God, and you t- you're telling me to lead you out of captivity. Who, who even are you, right? Who, what is your name? What do you like? What am I going to say to them? And God reveals himself. That's where he gives his name, Yahweh, I am who I am. But he also says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, but Abraham's dead. Or I was the God of Jacob when he was alive. But I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of uh, of." Others. So, so he's saying they live, right? So he just sort of says to them, wow, guys, you, weren't, you haven't been reading this very carefully because even in the books that you accept, uh, I can argue for the resurrection. So then um, <laughs> says in verse 39, uh, some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well. Uh, and they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Okay, so, you know, we're like 0 for 75 in trying to trap Jesus in these, uh, in these questions. Uh, nobody else wants to go forward. But when we lived in uh, Washington State, back in the, in the late 90s, there was uh, a couple years where there was almost this circus-like uh, reporting that would go on every night uh, when the salmon were running, uh, and the Ballard uh, locks. So there was, there was one particular sea lion named Herschel who uh, was huge. He weighed 800 pounds, and he would show up every time when the salmon were running, 
And he would just sort of basically sit there and just take a bite out of every salmon that swam by. And he was obese, and the fishermen were screaming because they, you know. And, and every, many people wanted to kill Herschel. Others were saying, of course, you can't kill Herschel. And so the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife, would, they, just, this would go on for weeks, right? They were trying fireworks. They, they, they were blasting rock music underwater. You know, they, they, they would catch a certain number of fish and give them a, a dye that made them taste bad. They were, doing, they were, they were shooting rubber um, uh, harpoons at Herschel. They were doing everything they could to try and chase the sea lion away. And eventually they, they got permission to trap him and relocate him. So they, this took weeks and weeks. And you would see every night on the news, there would be, there's, you know, 18 boats out there and all these people are going around and they spend six hours getting Herschel located in one corner of the, uh, of, of the lock. And then all of a sudden you'd see, and then Herschel's head pokes up and he looks around and he'd just swim over and swim, you know, lay over on the net and swim away. So they'd do this for weeks. When I, when I was watching that, when I think about that, I think this is sort of Jesus, right? I mean, you got the Keystone cops out there trying to trap him, and they just, they cannot trap him at all. They eventually did trap Herschel. They took him down to uh, California. He made it back in 72 hours. Uh, <laughs> so then there was, there was in, a, in a wonderfully Pacific Northwest politically correct statement, there was uh, permission for the permanent solution was issued. But then SeaWorld offered to take Herschel. They came out and trapped him. I suspect uh, he's no longer swimming in SeaWorld. I don't know how long Sea Lion lives, but he had a, he had a good life. He ate a lot of salmon. So um, they can't trap Jesus. So let's just take a step back and, and think about what we're being told here. Luke is writing to persuade us that Jesus is God, and that the way forward is to embrace Jesus, to, to put our confidence in Jesus, to, to declare that Jesus is our Lord, and that he is our teacher, he is our rabbi. We're going to follow him. We're, gonna, we're going to lean into him. We're going to embrace his teaching. We're going to try and follow his example. Right? That's what Luke is writing this passage to communicate. Now, we get this side story. I mean, the, the story is in there in part because when you stop and think about it, what we're learning about Jesus here is, oh yeah, he can tell us what eternity is like. Who can do that? Oh, this is what it's like. No, 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 you, 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 got, some, you got some confusion about what the next life is going to look like. It's going to look like this. Well, Jesus has already said, oh yeah, no, I'm eternal. I, I'm before Abraham. I created everything everywhere. I will come back as judge of everyone. I am, I am God, right? He's made all these claims. So now it's just another little casual little claim. Oh, yeah, no, I can tell you what eternity is like because, of course, I've lived in eternity. Now, the big, the big message is it's about Jesus, right? The subtext here is we get a little bit about heaven. Not much. I started thinking more about heaven after I had my health issues a couple years ago. I'm very thankful for the recovery that I made. But it wasn't a 100% recovery. And the reality, as my boys point out to me, is I'm not 25 anymore. So 
I, I, I run slow, much slower today than I used to. And they say, Dad, you were slow before the stroke. You're, you're trying to blame the stroke. You're just old. This isn't about the stroke. So I have come to a place where I go, okay, life can get better. I can become better. I can continue to get closer to God and become more like Christ. But physically, I'm going to decline. And I'm not going to be able to do the things that I used to be able to do. And there's a sense of loss that comes with that. And so then you start to long and say, okay, wow, I hope in heaven I can do this. I hope in heaven I can do that. Right? So I started reading more, just trying to figure out a little bit more about what heaven's like. And we get statements like this from Jesus. We get some things in the book of Revelation 20 and 21 about, you know, streets of gold and gates of pearls. And, and there's no darkness because Jesus is the sun and he fills everything. And it's, it's helpful, and I think we can take some ideas out of that. But the reality is... Uh, we don't get a lot of information. And I think in part it's because we can't process it. I don't think we could completely grasp it. It may not even seem that good to us because we're broken now. So our, even our desires have been bent in certain ways. But I think the other reason that we don't get all this information is because thinking about heaven is not what we're called to. It's focusing on Jesus. The thing that makes heaven great is Jesus, right? Jesus will be there. It's about God. It's not about heaven. And so we're, we are being reminded here in this passage by Luke. He's written this whole book, and this passage is just one of them. We're being reminded there's nobody like Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus, and we need to follow Jesus. So last week, I said, look, some of you are going to be happy with the results of the election. Some of you are going to be distressed by the results of the election. And I'm just going to say, Psalm 62, that uh, our hope is not in princes. Right? It's not in the, whoever occupies the, the office in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Right? What we ultimately need, whoever is president cannot deliver. And uh, our hope is not in princes, but we need to rest assured God has this, right? God is in control. The God who created two trillion galaxies, each with 200 billion stars and solar systems, he's got this. This is not outside of his reach. The question that comes to us is, what does it look like to be faithful in this moment? And I just want to say to you, we follow Jesus, we go back to Jesus. We lean into Jesus. And his teaching, his example, he is the way forward. The Gospel of Luke, as the Gospel of Matthew and Mark and John, the entire Bible is pointing us to God's gift to us. And that gift was his son, who gives us eternal life and a path forward. And so, I want to say, especially in light of verse 34... Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are accounted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection of the dead, which suggests that not everybody is accounted worthy to attain the resurrection of the dead. I want to say to you, what really matters is that you are right with Jesus. It's not principally about heaven. 
It's principally about being right with God. And the way to get right with God is to lean into, to follow, to embrace, to, to model your life after Jesus, who is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, yet again, Luke is directing us to what ultimately matters and provides peace and direction in the days ahead. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this book which never ceases to yield uh, answers to the big questions about who we are and where we came from and what matters and how to live and what it looks like to live a life that is uh, good and pleasing to you. And it never fails to point us to Jesus. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your example, for your teaching. We thank you for your death in our place on the cross. I pray for those in particular right now who might not know you as Savior and Lord, that, um, that, that you would reach to them even as they reach to you and that they would sense that in you is life and hope even in a world that is uh, a little uh, disrupted. So may we uh, all take steps forward, Lord God, to embrace more fully Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.